that moment before I tried to turn on my phone, I, I will, (laughs) I will never forget those moments because I knew, you know, despite having lived in Afghanistan, having lived in Gaza, having lived in South Sudan, worked in all of these crazy places and, you know, come out unscathed, I knew that this was the moment that if my phone didn't turn on, I would die. Welcome to the Sam Gash podcast. These are conversations with trailblazers, rule breakers, and those who pave their own lane and venture boldly into the unknown. By entering this uncharted arena, they inevitably stumble, yet they all display an ability to innovate and contribute, even when the odds are not in their favor. We skip over their highlights reel and go into the guts of who they are and what they believe in. I'm your host, Samantha Gash, and I'm an endurance athlete, a former corporate lawyer and social impact entrepreneur. It is my absolute privilege to create the space for these guests. If you found these conversations to be of value or have any feedback, please subscribe, rate and review, and I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome back to the Sam Gash podcast. I've had a little break to be present to the holidays and my family, and I'm so excited to come back to the podcast sharing some epic tales of adventure from some incredibly inspiring human beings. This week's episode is no different, and it's incredibly impactful, exactly what we need to kick into 2021. It's with Stephanie Cates. She's a humanitarian lawyer for the UN, and you'll most often find her in deployments and conflict zones. She's lived in a compound in Afghanistan, attended South Sudan, Iraq. Uh, she's currently in Chamonix, uh, having taken a new position in New York. And right before COVID-19 broke out, she was the head of protection of civilians and child protection for the United Nations in Afghanistan. She has found an uncanny way of combining her experiences in the field to found a not-for-profit organization called Free to Run. It uses the power of sports to help women and girls overcome the harmful effects of conflict and discrimination. And we talk about how her experience setting up this organization and how she's distilled mission and purpose after many years in this space. She's a three-time finisher of Tour de Giants, placing second, a finisher of UTMB. She's towed the start line of the Barclay twice, as well as the finisher of a multitude of ultramarathons all over the world. This conversation discusses her pathway from corporate law to humanitarian law, how she's learnt to package her emotions through experiences that have certainly extended her. We explore her insights on pathways into development and volunteering, and we learn about some of the truly earth-shaking and life-and-death situations Steph has experienced from her time in South Sudan, Afghanistan, and on a mountaintop in the Italian Alps. Through all of this, we look at how she's coped with trauma, her pathway to recovery, and what I found incredibly profound is her understanding and empowering stance of her personal journey, which may be so unique and contrasting to so many other people's timelines. If you guys love this conversation, I would love it if you would share it. I loved having this conversation, and it's so great to be back with you guys, 2021, Well, at the very least, I can promise you the certainty of some powerful conversations that are totally going to extend how we see ourselves and other people. I hope you enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, don't you? (laughs) 
I just almost find it ironical that, you know, you're finally in Chamonix for an extended period of time and now you are constrained again with your mobility. <laughs> it, 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 it crossed my mind a few times. <laughs> yeah. And I have a couple of your friends, you know, who normally work with you reached out to you and had a little humorous moment. They don't actually realize, I don't know if a lot of people outside of France realize how strict the restrictions are. <laughs> so yeah, no, they don't really know. I keep getting messages saying, oh, you must be loving it. The mountains are amazing. <laughs> 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 how yeah. strict are the restrictions right now? So we're allowed to go outside for one, a maximum of one hour and within one kilometer of home. And, and that's about it. Yeah, we had the one hour of permitted outdoor leisure to exercise, yep. uh, but we had a five-kilometre radius, so they've, you know, they've dialed that in for you guys. <laughs> well, you know, it's better <laughs> than the lockdown in, in the spring because in the spring, especially in Chamonix, I mean, they they know that this place is full of adventures. So they had 3D restrictions. They even had an elevation restriction. <laughs> so you oh, couldn't. No. <laughs> so you could go one kilometer, um, and not one kilometer as the crow flies, like one kilometer actually walking, and then limited 100 meters of elevation. <laughs> Well, they were smart enough to realise the rule bender nature, <laughs> adventurous mindset of the people that live in Chamonix, that they had to be very specific with their limitations. Exactly, exactly. I think, um, you know, people were starting to see if there were, you know, ponds that they could dive down in, you know, maybe the the elevation restrictions didn't apply to going down. So there were, there were lots of creative ways people were trying to get around these <laughs> Let's just dive straight in <laughs> if you yeah. want to. Yeah, um, yeah. It's so crazy because we first met in the real flesh in 2011 um, in Nepal. Yeah. Yeah, almost 10 years ago now, which is crazy because I think a lot has happened sense a lot and and not so much we were such babies then um but I do remember that race being played with like 75 percent of the field having diarrhea the whole time <laughs> so it yeah. wasn't that pleasurable <laughs> I remember waking up in the tent one morning and I had gotten the same bug I think seven out of the eight um, members of our tent had gotten this bug and I was just desperate to go vomit somewhere in peace and I couldn't find my shoes and someone had taken my, my shoes outside of the tent and so I just ran barefoot over to oh, through the sludge over to the porta potties and one of my tent mates was sitting there wearing my shoes sitting on a chair in front of the porta potties just vomiting inside so I forgave her because we were kind of all in the same boat but yeah it was that that was brutal but again, I think our definition of what brutal is has very much changed since that, that time for both of us. Well, then let's talk about that because that's correct. I mean, diarrhea in Nepal whilst trying to do a 250-kilometer quite mountainous race seemed extreme at that point in our lives. Uh, yeah. Now fast forward, you know, close to a decade. Can you try and capture to me what your version of suffering or being beyond your comfort zone really looks like now? Oof, that's that's a big question. Um, where do I begin? I, 
I think a lot of the work that I do has really helped bring me out of my own head and realize that in whatever moment I'm in, it might feel like suffering to me. And, and, and it's important to realize that, you know, your emotions and, and what you're experiencing, they're not relative. Whatever you feel is, is what you feel. Um, but it's how you choose to package those emotions together, how you choose to um, uh, act on your experiences that, that matters. And so that's what's changed for me. I mean, suffering is suffering is suffering, but I think I've changed how I, I react to the experiences I go through. And, and that's because of the, the places I work in. So since, since we met in 2011, I have uh, lived in a tent working in a camp for internally displaced people in South Sudan, where, you know, I, I came in, it was a, about um, two months after the conflict broke out in South Sudan at the end of 2013. And I was literally dropped off, you know, with um, a tent and kind of a backpack, no sat phone, you know, no comms, just dropped off um, by helicopter in the middle of a cattle field. And there were, I think at that time, 80,000 people who had been displaced by the conflict. And, you know, they'd hopped on um, boats to go down the Nile and, and try to escape and flee the, the fighting that was happening in their state. And then they would land in, in the place where, um, where I had arrived. So um, this, this tiny little place that really wasn't on a map before the conflict. And there were 80,000 people there with nothing, like absolutely nothing. You know, the, just the clothes on their back and, and hopefully their, their family members. And I mean, that is suffering. It was, it was suffering on a scale that, you know, you might see on the news, but I'd never been in it before. Even that the other places that I traveled to or I'd been, you see, you know, people who are homeless, you see people living on the streets, you see, um, you know, people who are starving, but to actually live in it um, day after day w was entirely, was entirely different. And, you know, I remember thinking just how terrible it was. And I was talking to one of the members of my team who was also you know, displaced himself. And he was always so positive. He would, you know, <laughs> come to work every day. And when I mean come to work, he would come from the tree that he was kind of sheltered under and come over to the area where, where we were sheltered under. And, and I had a tent. Um, so I was quite lucky in, in that sense. And he was always so positive. And we, when we were chatting one day, you know, I asked him, I said, how, how can you be this positive? You know, we're at risk of, a, you know, a cholera um, infection spreading throughout the site. Um, you know, you have to line up for food to get food from um, the World Food Program. You're, you're worried about your kids. You know, what, how are you able to, to survive this? And he said, oh, well, you know, in the, in the 1990s, you know, no one cared about South Sudan and, and there, there were no humanitarians here to help us. Like at, at least people know what's happening now. And I was just floored because we were in what I thought was the worst situation possible. And he had a different frame of reference. You know, everyone has a different perspective. Everyone comes to something differently. And he just packaged up his current situation and focused on 
everything that he did have, which was so little, instead of looking at everything that he had just lost. And I think it's a really important message for a lot of people now who are going through um, restrictions, going through the pandemic. You know, it's just a terrible time for everyone. And I think a lot of people are, are struggling. And I don't want to take away from that struggle because, again, you know, feelings, emotions, you can't you can't change those. Those are, those are natural and those aren't relative. If you are feeling suffering, then, then that's valid. But I think people are having a hard time, you know, packaging those up in a way that allows them to really acknowledge everything that they still do have, um, rather than focus on all of the things that they've lost from, from the restrictions, from the pandemic. Um, and so it's something I, I try to keep in mind for myself as I sit here in lockdown, I'm in lockdown in France, but I mean, come on, I'm in Chamonix. <laughs> I've got a roof over my head. I'm sitting here with, you know, a latte. Life is good. You know, life is really good. I'm, I'm so happy that you took us straight there because, you know, I really feel, you know, I was, I was kind of trying to take a step back and to think of like the different kind of facets of your life that at least I know as an outsider and, and know I know of you as you know a lawyer that works for the United Nations I know you as an incredible ultra endurance athlete who the longer the better um, when the odds are the harder the better you will play um, and I know of the work that you do with your not-for-profit organization three three buckets of your life and I'm sure there are plenty others but all of them quite surprisingly you've managed to sync them in together when they could particularly be quite contrasting and conflicting um you've found this way of doing it all where for many people just doing one of those things would be a, a significant achievement and whilst I want to kind of definitely look at the work that you do with the United Nations I, I want to go back to that thing where you were talking about you know the, one of your colleagues who was able to package things up and focus on what he does have and I, I'd love to know with you is this something that you kind of always had within you or it's something that you've been cultivating through the fact that you've now had such diverse experiences in some really challenging locations that's a good question I would love to be able to say that you know I always had this perspective in me but I don't think I did I, I really don't think I did you know I was quite a precocious little kid um, and, you know, grew up in, I think, quite privileged circumstances. And you are the product of, of your own environment. And it wasn't until a little bit later that I think I realized I needed to expand my, my perspective. Maybe that's what I always had in me. I'm, I've always been curious. I've always wanted to learn more. And, you know, it became very obvious at some point that growing up in a suburb of Toronto in, in Canada, you know, living in um, a nice house and going to sailing school on the weekend, that that wasn't really showing me what, what the world was, was really like. And so, yeah, I think my first kind of foray kind of outside of my, my comfort zone, I, I took a third of my semester off when I was in university in second year university and I went and volunteered in Ghana and you know I've spoken about this before you know the ethics of, of volunteerism are um pretty debatable at, at this point and and I I wouldn't necessarily recommend it um 
back then, I was lucky that the organization I was with made it very clear that we were not going to help anyone. You know, it doesn't help anyone to have a white person travel to Africa and, you know, sit and, and volunteer doing something for, you know, a month or two. Like that, that does nothing. Um, and you're really taking way more than you're possibly giving. I mean, I was not a skilled laborer. There was, there was nothing I was really providing. Mm-hmm. And so they pitched it as a, as a cultural exchange. They said, look, you know, you are learning about them. They're learning about you. That's what this is. Um, so I just want to make that, that caveat. Um, and, and that's really what opened my eyes up a bit um, and gave me that thirst to really keep diving in to see what more I could learn, um, what I could learn from people who are in difficult situations, what it would tell me about myself, and then try to find that niche where I could make a difference. It wasn't going to be through, you know, going on trips to Africa and, and volunteering. That that wasn't, you know, that that certainly wasn't it. Um, but I am grateful for that experience to help show me how much more I needed to to learn. Um and it has helped me, it's helped me become a better person. I mean, I think everyone can kind of become a different person of themselves. And I'm sure there was a path that I might have gone down that would have made me quite selfish. and You know, not, not so nice to hang around. I, I, I think that's in everyone. And <laughs> you have to kind of make the choice not to be that, that person. If people are listening to this and they come from a privileged background or they have children who are in a privileged background and you've kind of said um, that the path down volunteering can be more complicated for those on the ground, um, even if you might have you know, positive intentions initially, what would you say would be some ways that you could expand your horizons in the types of ways that you have that might be different? Yeah, it's a it's a really hard question because I don't I don't know how I would do it now <laughs> if I was graduating from university or if I had kids um because the environment has changed the what we know about um development and and again the ethics of of um volunteering activities has changed and um you know it's <sighs> It's one of those things where I think you have to really take a, a deep look at why you might want to get involved in something because it's it's ultimately not about making ourselves feel better. You know, anytime there's a a, disaster, a humanitarian disaster, you get all of these people who want to send things or they want to hop on a plane and just help out. And that's a great feeling. That's a great motivation. But it ultimately is a a bit of a selfish one. And I don't want to say that with a negative connotation. It's just, you know, we're reacting to this desire that that we want to help, but not really thinking about how that will actually make an impact on the ground or or not. Um, And oftentimes when you have that type of response, it makes things worse on the ground. And, you know, the, the best way if you want to assist and if you want to, um, to expose yourself is to just, is to learn as, as a first step. It's a very boring one, but, you know, ed- educate yourself about what is going on in, in a certain place or a certain situation. Um, 
you know, I went through painful years of <laughs> university, which again, I, I was, I was lucky to do, but you know, you can watch documentaries. You can, um, I think, you know, for parents who have kids, um, exposing them to other cultures, other ideas through books, through stories. And that's what I'm trying to do with, with my nieces. It's not nearly as, as sexy as, you know, jumping on a plane and going off to a war zone, but <laughs> it's, it's surprisingly yeah. quite hard to, to get to that stage these days now, um, which I, I completely understand. You know, um, the first time I went to Afghanistan was mm, eight years ago, and I had been dying to go to Afghanistan for years, for years. And I don't know why. <laughs> I think it was because it was, you know, back then and, and still now, you know, one of the worst places in, in the world to be born um, a girl and to grow up as a, as a woman. And I wanted to see what that was like. And it was so hard to get there. And at the time, I was still thinking in my head, like, why don't people, you know, why don't they want to take me? You know, all I want to do, I don't need to be paid. I just want to volunteer. I want to go to Afghanistan. And in my head, I was still thinking that that this would be a good thing and that people would be crazy not to want to take free help in a war zone. But, you know, that's not a help to any organization or, or to any people because I had no experience in a war zone. I, I think a bit about it too. I, I did similar things to you. Like I, I, and I look back now and I'm like, I mean, I think I caused more chaos than some. I mean, I was aware <laughs> that I was the one that benefited fitting more um but for many people if you go eyes wide open and you're very clear that you're the one that's benefiting and then it's your responsibility to use that information positively down the track and I think there is um benefit in that but I think you would then want to kind of do quite a bit of research into volunteer programs that take you on that experience with that intention Uh, and so it's equipped to not have you kind of replacing a qualified professional on the ground, you know, providing education or building a home or exposing you to information. You are there as a almost this observer um, and you can take that information back into the communities that you're part of and hopefully share those experiences. But I think you, you're right. I think research and absorbing yourself in the information of the experiences of others a little bit removed is not a bad place to start. And I think a lot of people want to skip that because it doesn't seem sexy or glamorous um, and you can't take a photo of it and you can't put on social media, um, but it's the work that actually counts. And then I think, you know, where uh, I think about it with Harry right now because, of yeah. course, you know, he, he is privileged that he gets to grow up in a, in a place where we can, you know, travel around Australia and he's educated and all those basic fundamental rights he has without, you know, a blink of the eye. Uh, and so it's something that I'm constantly thinking about right now. How do I allow him to be worldly um, but in the right type of way? Oh, but I mean, he's got the best mom for that. I mean, I think, you know, taking him, taking him on, on travels exposing him to other um, cultures, other settings. And that's the best way. I mean, you know, as we're, we were talking, I'm just thinking if, if I were to, to redo this, to redo my life, <laughs> instead of signing up for, for a volunteering program, I would just go. 
And I think that's actually the way to do it is, you know, research. If you're interested in going to a place, if you're interested in another culture, if you're interested in learning more, research it deeply and then go. And if you go on your, under your own steam, on your own steam, whatever the expression is, um, then opportunities will, will pop up. Um, when you get there, I did that once. I, I really wanted this internship with the UN um, in Malaysia and working with um, refugees. And I couldn't really seem to get an in. So I just went. Attitude and approach doesn't surprise me at all with you. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I mean, it worked out. Because if you take the responsibility yourself, it's not on the organization to uh, to bring you over. It's not in the organization to to have to vet you. If you just show up, and then you can prove to the organization yourself when you're there whether you can be of assistance or or not. Um, <laughs> I think parents around the world are cringing because they would hate to see their kids doing <laughs> what I'm suggesting, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, but it's gonna it's gonna funnel out those who aren't that interested because that's quite a yeah. ballsy, bold move to do. And so, um, I would almost feel like that move would come from someone who had spent quite a bit of time in thinking about that before they just jump on a plane. Um, well, with the work with the United Nations, I mean, I know you worked in corporate law and then you moved into the, to the UN. Was there a, a pathway for you to do that that, that was quite easy? Again, you, you'd think you'd think it would be easy to to work in in war zones because who would want to work in war zones? There must be you know jobs must be plentiful, <laughs> but it, it's just not <laughs> it's just not the case. Um, so I did my first degree in in development studies um, in international development and psychology, and then I did my law degree. But it was always my desire. Uh, to get into this type of work that I'm doing now, international human rights, international humanitarian law, which is really the law of, of war. Um, but it, it wasn't clear to me how, how I could get there. And so I just tried to, again, expose myself to as many different experiences as I could. I, um, I went into corporate law, not because I was interested in, in corporate law. Frankly, I, I don't know who is, but um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I saw it as, as a way to get um, really good training and really good experience on just basic skills, um, time management, you know, working with supervisors, um, sticking to deadlines. And the big law firms in New York had these amazing pro bono programs where, you know, they aligned with these charities and you were encouraged to do work for them, which was exactly the kind of work that I wanted to get paid for eventually. So for, for me, it was, it was perfect. And I started working with Lawyers Without Borders and then started just funding my own trips to work on projects that they had ongoing in Liberia and Ethiopia and Rwanda so that I could get that field experience that I knew I would need to get a paid job eventually um, working in that space. And yeah, it was actually, you know, the, the downfall of the global economy that helped get me to the next stage because when Lehman Brothers crashed, my firm, like many of the other uh, major law firms, were paying people to literally not come to work for a year. It was cheaper for them to give us 
you know, a portion of our salary to just not come to work. And I jumped at that. And, you know, I went and did human rights work for a year. I'm just using the money that, that the, the firm had given me. And then I went back to school again and I did, um, uh, an LLM at masters of law, specifically in international human rights and humanitarian law. Um, so that I could set myself up better for, for working in a war zone. And, um, after doing a bit more, um, a bit more work on kind of the diplomatic human rights side of things, I got the position in, in, with the UN in Afghanistan, which was a volunteer position. I mean, you, you get paid when you're a volunteer with the UN, but I'd gone from being, you know, quite a high paid corporate lawyer. It was the best salary I've still ever gotten. And it's only downhill since then. <laughs> <laughs> to being a volunteer in a war zone. And you know, I was so proud. I was so proud of myself. Mm. And I'm sure people were shaking their heads. Um, but that, that was my first in, you know, I knew that would be the start of, of the career that I, that I wanted. Um, and it was. Do you know, there's so many people that have these aspirations and they're just never brave or they don't feel like there's an opening like what you had with, by giving, um, a, being given a year off to work, to not work. Um, you know, when you finally started to go down this path, which is more what you kind of hoped to be doing, was there any, any point where you felt like, oh, I want that security, I want that structure, take me back there now, or were you just relieved that you'd finally started to move in the direction that you were wanting to go? I had no regrets at all when I was in Afghanistan, and I think that's what I do feel lucky about, that I've always had a very clear um, sense of purpose and a very clear idea about not the exact job that I want, but the kind of, of job that I wanted to be doing. And I was so anxious to get there that once I finally was, the I never looked back to think, oh, I really wish I'd you know, stayed working on those deals. I mean, I was in mergers and acquisitions and I have literally no idea <laughs> what I did when I was there. I would have no idea how to do that job if I went back. And I think if you talk to anyone, you'd, I'm sure you would say the same thing about your own path. You know, I, if you talk to anyone who follows their passion, they never look back and say, I wish I'd stayed in that corporate job. You just don't hear that. And, you know, isn't it terrible that the best thing that you can remember of oh isn't it so nice that after 7 p.m you got a free meal at the office so you could stay working at your desk I'm like it's really bad and that's what you hold on to you know got to make sure I stay till seven so I get that free dinner uh, see, our, ours, ours was 8 p.m so you know maybe uh, I was deprived um but you know I've stolen Australia a bit more crazy <laughs> But it, it's true. You know, I, I did have a moment when I was in South Sudan. Um, things were things were dire. Things were just so bad. Mm. It, was, it was hard. I, I don't think I've ever worked like that before. And I don't think I'll ever work like that again, frankly. It was, it was just something I, I've never experienced. There was no, obviously, there was no off, off switch. There were no office hours. There were no, mm. you were in the midst of a very serious humanitarian emergency. And you saw people dying and, you know, you were getting sick yourself a lot of the time. Um, there were concerns about safety. I mean, it was, 
it was really quite stressful with very little relief. And I did have a few nights kind of lying there in the tent, just, you know, praying that I would get, this sounds awful, but praying I would get sick enough for a medevac, but like not so Mm -hmm. sick that it would have (laughs) like long-term effects. There was someone who got, um, medevaced out because they had uh, typhoid and malaria. And I remember feeling so jealous and thinking about how twisted that was. And I just thought, what are you doing, Case? I think a lot of people would would have had moments like that. It's not like it was the overwhelming dwelling thought that you had 24-7. But of course you must have been having these like, oh, my goodness, I'm not escaping (laughs) this. I'm living this. Situation and there's so much despair and, and, and helplessness, you sometimes must have been, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say you should have been feeling this way, but did you ever feel like that you're this very small cog in a very complicated machinery and situation that am I actually making impact? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I had that feeling um, in Afghanistan recently, actually. It was right before um, the elections. And I, we'd had parliamentary elections um, that were quite violent and, um, you know, hundreds of people had been killed and injured um, on polling day and the year after we had um, presidential elections. And the night before the elections, you know, there was a small group of us that were going to be in this, um, let's call it like an ops room. We were all going to be together, you know, monitoring the developments, reporting them, um, trying to figure out the, the situation. And it was going to be an intense day. And so everyone had gathered the night before just to have a dinner and, and get together. And I, I, I just couldn't join them because I knew that the next day my job would be to count and keep track of how many people were getting killed and injured. And I knew it was going to happen and there was nothing I could do to stop it. You know, our, as part of my job, so my job was, um, I was in charge of protection of civilians and, um, children in armed conflict. And that's quite a heavy portfolio because you're, you're basically documenting every incident of the armed conflict that results in civilian harm and then trying to use that information to advocate with the different parties to the conflict, the government of Afghanistan, um, the international forces, mainly the, the U.S. and um, the Taliban, uh, to change the way that they are fighting war so that less people would, would be harmed, so that people would be better protected. And we had done the advocacy with, with the Taliban um, around the elections and that these were um, this is a civilian, um, these were going to civilian sites. Um, these were people who were not involved in fighting and under the laws of war, they, they should be protected. And, and we, we just, we, we knew that the fighting would happen. We knew that there would be, um, hundreds of rockets, you know, launched, um, indiscriminately in, um, in cities. We knew that there would be IEDs on the road and that people would still go out to vote anyway, despite that risk. And it was it was just such it, it was such a strange moment for me. I mean, I I just I lay down on the floor and I was just sobbing. And um, you know, I, I understood 
understood what my role was and that of course, you know, I, I can't change the war. <laughs> like I, I, there's no way that you could possibly expect one person. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous and, and arrogant to think that you could, but in order to do this kind of work, you have to believe that you can make a difference in, in what you're doing and that what the work that you're doing has value. And to try to remember that in that situation was, um, was pretty tough. And, and I would have moments like that. Um, I would have moments like that a lot because it, it can be, it can be completely all encompassing and, and overwhelming. And then you think, you know, what possible difference can one person make? But you do, there is a value to doing that kind of work there, whether you, you know, are able to support one person, whether you are able to, you know, shift the, shift the landscape in the tiniest way and move in a millimeter in the right direction, it does have a, a, a ripple effect. I mean, as, as you know, from, from the work that, that you've done and, you know, you have to believe wholeheartedly in, in what you're doing in this kind of work, or you'll just, you'll lose your mind. Oh man, Stephanie Case, there's so much in that. <laughs> you know, when you're, I don't know where to start, but like when you're advocating with the Taliban, one, how does that look? And two, is there a respect for the rules of war? Yeah, I'm I'm a bit limited in, you know, how much I can go into it. I mean, not to <laughs> sound like a yeah. Jason born spy, but <laughs> um, <laughs> <But> I am. <laughs> um oh, no, I mean my I loved that job so much. It was so awesome. Um yeah, you, you know what's what I love about working um, on the laws of war on international humanitarian law is that, you know, with the exception of like Daesh or, or ISIL, um, or, you know, really, um, extremist groups, a lot of um, armed groups, a lot of armed movements, um, or like the Taliban, you know, they were the, the government at, at one point, um, and are seeking to, to be again, you know, a lot of these groups, they're looking for legitimacy, they're they're looking to be seen as as a credible actor, and part of that means following the laws that everyone else um, is responsible for. And so, you know, even on the worst days, where I just thought, oh, you know, the the suffering is just too much, I would come back to the fact that I was able to use the same language, I was able to use the same framework um, of international humanitarian law with the international forces, <clears throat> with the um, national armed forces um, in the country and with the Taliban. And, you know, they will use the same arguments to point fingers at the other side and you can use those arguments back with them. So um, that's what makes it quite exciting. And, and th this is the case, you know, all around the world. You wouldn't think that, you know, these these groups would, would care about what some international law says, but they do. They care what, um, what is a, defined as a war crime. Um, they care what is allowed and what's not allowed because they know that, you know, even if they don't necessarily believe the same things, that there is a, a cost. There's a political cost. And of course, there's a human cost to breaking the laws 
that do exist um, and that apply to to every group, every party, every government, you know, every every armed actor. Um, so that's that's what I found really quite exciting, um, and I miss it. I miss it now. I can't wait until until my next job when I can go back into whatever the next war is. <laughs> to you, was that the same type of work that you were doing uh, in South Sudan? No, um, in South Sudan, I was very much working more on the humanitarian response. Um, so it was basically making sure that all of the um, humanitarian assistance that organizations or the government um, were providing was reaching um, the most vulnerable, was making sure that, that people weren't left out of the response. So um, that pregnant women, that um, the elderly, um, people with disabilities, that all of these people weren't left out and that their um, needs were being addressed um, and that they were actually being prioritized in, in the humanitarian response. And that I was doing work um, similar to that in, in Gaza as well, looking at the um, helping to coordinate the humanitarian response on the protection side of things um, in Gaza following the 2014 um, escalation. Um, but also looking at the, the legal aspects as well. And then, and then, yeah, in, in Afghanistan, it, it was really, um, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of, of how the parties were conducting war, which, which was cool because I, I mean, that's not cool, but my job was cool. Um, <laughs> because I, I got to, you know, hang out with the, the military all of the time. And they're such an interesting group. It's such an interesting culture. Um, as I'm sure that you, <laughs> and and I really you know you wouldn't think it would be a, a happy marriage between um, a human rights lawyer and you know let's say an American soldier but um, ultimately everyone is trying to get to the same place which is uh, to have less people killed and uh, yeah, yeah. And so I, I really loved, I, I loved the, the, the tension. I loved, you know, when we would come together and, and agree on points. I did the, an embed with the American military down in, in Kandahar. And that was just one of the best weeks I think I've, I've ever had because it was so different and so outside of, um, you know, my, my human rights world. And yeah, I think that's that's what it's all about. Just trying to figure out, you know, where the different sides are coming from and, and how you can speak to them in, in a language that um, that they will, you know, buy into that resonates with them. I mean, you've been to so many different places now doing this type of work, and obviously different scales of this type of work. But what have you seen that happens that when an initial mission is all of a sudden becoming fractured and maybe impossible to achieve? and the people that are there having to pivot to a new direction? Like what happens in that type of environment? You know, in, in many ways, um, when the pandemic hit, that was kind of the game changer for everyone, you know, including for the UN, including for, you know, me and my my own NGO. You know, they're, mm. the UN prides itself and many NGOs pride themselves on on kind of, Staying, staying through the worst 
situations and continuing to deliver, and especially in Afghanistan, you know, there's suicide attacks, there's bombs, there's, um, you know, there's, there's danger around every corner. And, and that's the whole point. You, you stay and you continue to deliver and you continue to serve. But the, with COVID, it, it was a completely different situation where actually our presence on the ground was more of a hindrance than, than not because the health facilities just weren't there to, um, to respond. And so, you know, every person that was in, um, Afghanistan and, and this applies to, to my own NGO, um, if you got sick, you would be, you know, stressing a very, very weak healthcare system. And as an international, especially, you you would be prioritized, um, unfortunately, because you have money, and that's just something that that can't happen. <laughs> and so, yeah. Um, yeah, when when COVID hit, I I didn't even wait for the UN to tell me that I could leave because I knew it's a big organization; it takes time to make these decisions. And and once they did, um, the flights probably wouldn't be going into the country anymore. And so. Um, the executive director of, of Free to Run, my uh, my NGO, we talked to one another, I think it was about four in the morning um, on a Sunday, which is the start of the week in, in Afghanistan. And we saw that that flights were shutting down. And there was a flight that morning at 8 a.m. And I just said, look, we both need to get on the flight. And we, just, we went to the airport. <laughs> we got on the flight. And it was a terrible feeling because you feel like you're abandoning um, your work, you're abandoning the country, you're abandoning your colleagues. Um, you know, with free to run, we were abandoning the programs, but I just knew that we would be able to continue to keep working outside of the country, um, while things were stabilizing and, and inside of the country, again, we, we would be more of a risk, um, if we got sick and, and it was better for us to, to be out, but it was a really hard decision to, to make. I think it was the right one in the end. Um, and, you know, clearly all of the other organizations and the UN and everyone went in that same direction, but, um, we just kind of had to make that decision at, at the, um, at the final hour, um, to get on, on those last flights, but it's, it's tough and we're still kind of dealing with those decisions and figuring out, okay, you know, when do we start programs? When do we, um, when do we start to try to go back to normal and, and we're not there yet. And it's, it's a hard thing to grapple with, you know, my organization, we're all about, you know, creating female leaders in areas of conflict through outdoor sports and adventure. And a lot of that obviously can't, it can't happen in, in groups. Um, we can't do the activities that we've done before during the pandemic because um, it's just not safe. And we've seen other organizations go back to quote unquote normal programming because it seems like it is, but in places like Iraq and Afghanistan where we're working, you can't, it's, it's not like Australia or France or, or anywhere else where if things do go wrong, you can go to the hospital, get treatment and, and then you're fine. There's just no infrastructure for that. Um, so we've been quite, quite conservative in, in how we're approaching it. I mean, can you give me a bit more of a 
rundown on free to run like when you kind of started what was the what was the call to to do this and kind of where are some of your programs maybe not right now but where were they before you had to kind of um, put a pause on current movement yeah um so I started free to run in 2014 and it was after I'd spent a year in Afghanistan you know, I'd gone in, I was a UN volunteer and everyone told me you're, you're not going to be able to run, you know, you're going to be living in an armed compound and you're going to have to give up your running. And of course, you know, someone tells you, you can't do something, you say, screw you and you figure out how to do it. And of course I could keep running. I mean, I was in an, an armed compound, um, where the longest stretch of road was maybe, I kept trying to measure it. Um, I think it, I don't know why I, I I could, I just, I kept saying every time I would go out for a run, I'm like, okay, Steph, you know, measure it this time. And I would just get distracted. But I think it was around <laughs> meters. So um, yeah, just over half a kilometer maybe, but it was mostly just loops. Um, and the pollution was terrible, but you could run. And so um, that year I just said I was going to, you know, raise some money for a local women's shelter um, by running some ultra marathons, which, which I did. And I thought that that was the best way that I could, I could use my running. I mean, you've been through this before, you know, thinking, okay, how do I do what I can and use, use what I can, um, through sport, um, to help others. And it was actually getting to know the women at the shelter. Um, when I was trying to raise money for the shelter that I realized there was a lot more that I could do you know, they were very happy, of course, to have the support for the shelter, but that was quite abstract, you know, for them, they didn't want to be in this shelter, they had to be there because of situations at home and, um, you know, quite dangerous situations that they were, that they needed to be protected from. But ultimately, they wanted to do the same thing that I was doing. And that's to step outside and to be able to go for a run and to experience the freedom of just moving through space. And they couldn't, do that. And so I tried to find other organizations that were willing to, to take on this kind of activity that were willing to try to help create safe spaces for women and girls to just be able to move outside. And everyone thought it was too risky or, you know, they wanted to do indoor volleyball games instead, which is which is useful, but that wasn't what I was really going after. And so it was when I was then in South Sudan in my tent that I, I put together the, you know, the business plan, the model for, for free to run. And I was very fortunate to be able to get some, um, some seed funding for it. And in between my jobs in um, South Sudan and then Gaza, I flew to Afghanistan and <laughs> launched the organization. And we started just with um, some some simple hikes out in um, the Central Highlands region in, in the country, which is one of the, the safer areas. And to see how quickly, you know, these women that were that were with us just kind of woke up by getting to the top of a climb and seeing their home, seeing their village from a different perspective was so cool. And, you know, everything expanded from there. So yeah, we've been going for, um, 
for six years. We're in um, Iraq and Afghanistan. We're now in five provinces in um, in Afghanistan, including in the south, which is you know an area that's traditionally been very conservative. Um, and we're um, in two places in Iraq. And supporting, uh, last year we supported almost 900 uh, women and girls. And our model is really looking at kind of three things. Um, outdoor adventure, which is of course, you know, the, the main, um, the main purpose, but also, um, we've developed a life skills through sports curriculum. So teaching women and girls, you know, conflict mediation, communication, leadership, all of the skills that they need to become leaders, you know, in their families, in their communities, in life, um, using sports to do that. And then, and then volunteering is the third component. So everyone who goes through the program ends up becoming a community development leader. Um, so they take the skills and, and all the things that they've learned and, um, they help spread it in, in their communities. And we've got, um, agreements with, you know, the Ministry of Education so we can deliver the curriculum in schools as well. And that's where we can, we can really try to instigate that community change because it's about, finding ways to allow women in places like this to become more visible, to get outside of the home so that it's not just change for them, but it's change for the communities. And when the communities see, you know, women and girls outdoors, you know, in a really unexpected way for, for them um, and seeing them doing good, you know, it, it, that's what changes the, the perceptions that people have about the roles that women can and should be playing in society. Well, I love that you say, ah, we started with a simple hike. And <laughs> the reality is nothing probably was simple about what you crafted in that hike. <laughs> um, and I, I'm so intrigued about, I mean, you, you're very clear on like the three kind of facets to the organisation, but how long did it take you to get clarity that those were the best three outlets for you to put together <laughs> <laughs> so much time I mean <laughs> you know I have a lot of people um, that will come to me and say oh I want to start my own NGO and I just say don't no <laughs> because, <laughs> don't <laughs> it's uh, yeah it's so much work I mean you there's a whole um you know degree that you should really take in NGO management and and nonprofit management and development and um and I had a degree in development but I I didn't know how to how to grow my own NGO it it really took some time there were a lot of growing pains I mean I think at the beginning you just kind of want to take advantage of any opportunity that comes your way um and so you know, we started in Afghanistan, but then there was also an opportunity to work with refugees in Hong Kong. And we thought, okay, well, this is people from conflict areas and it's using sport for development and peace and it's all tied together. But, you know, really th these are two very different um, programs with um, different goals, different um, challenges, different problems you're trying to address. And so after a couple of years, we, we actually split off that um, that part of the charity and it's doing super well. Um, and we've done super well since then, but it, it was a hard kind of growing pain to, to get through, to really try to hone down. Okay. What is our model? What is our core? What, what do we want to focus on? And it's, it's really, you know, our secret sauce is really, you know, working in areas of conflict and helping 
um, women to reclaim public space. And, and it's, it's taken years <laughs> to get there, you know, especially because I'm not doing it full time, of course. Um, so it took a while to get the funding to be able to hire someone, um, who could act as the executive director instead of me just trying to, trying to do this on the side. I mean, when I was in, um, Gaza, I was taking my R and R, my, my vacation to Afghanistan, <laughs> which is <laughs> 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 not ideal. And the flight connections, because you have to go from Tel Aviv, you know, Tel Aviv to Kabul is not, is not a common route. <laughs> um, the, the, the UN must have been looking at, like, your receipt for your itinerary going, why? Like, why is this her place for her R&R? <laughs> <laughs> I remember I was when I was switching from jobs from Gaza to Geneva and I'd gone back to Afghanistan and we were doing this trek through the Kohibaba mountains, which was just amazing because you're up, you know, at around 4,000 meters and you're just trekking through these gorgeous mountains, so remote, um, just going along little um, kind of ancient donkey paths and, and staying in, in villages. And, um, at some point I had to sort out my visa for Switzerland. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm standing on top of this, you know, mud roof trying to make a, a call and I get this message that, you know, I needed to find a Swiss embassy and, you know, they told me to go to Pakistan, which of course I needed a visa for as well. And so I'm trying to write down, I didn't have a pen. I'm trying to write down numbers for Swiss embassies ar around the world with a stick in, you know, in the sand on top of the screen. <laughs> but surely I could have made this a little bit easier for myself, but <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering about the, the safety element because um, yeah. you're obviously, I mean, on two elements, like firstly, um, women, a part of your kind of like mission is to, for women to have greater visibility um, in places where mm -hmm. maybe that's not, not the norm. So how does safety work in that element? But then how does safety also work when you are going out into these spaces as well? Um, how much pre-planning and like are you doing to kind of reduce as much risk as possible? Yeah, and that, that part is absolutely essential. And really, um, you know, some of it is just based on logistics. You know, if we have, um, for our training sessions, we don't kind of tell everyone, you know, where we're going to be training. You know, even the girls who are going on the training, it'll be, you know, the, the drivers and the program manager who will know the location where we're going. And we'll have to go around and, and pick everyone up. Um, in the vans and then go out to the location because yeah the more people you kind of know ahead of time where you're going to be the, the more of a risk that there is and you know it's about changing up locations making sure you know some of the girls are on Strava so making sure that <laughs> you know they they keep their their location secret you know some very basic things like that if we have races if we have events we don't announce them um, ahead of time of course so some just basic precautions. Um, but really the key is to make sure that we're working closely with um, the families and with the communities so that they understand um, what we're doing, what we're trying to do, that they um, agree with it. Um, I mean, definitely the parents, but through the parents, they're part of the community. Um, and that's 
that's the best way where we can make sure to to avoid any problems. But yeah, it's it's a constant worry. We have to be we have to be very careful. Um, and you know, there have been many nights where <laughs> where I've I've uh, lost a bit of sleep. Um, but you know, so far um, we've been doing okay. And and you know, that's that's not to say that the people in our program haven't been affected by the generalized violence. Um, and that's, you know, the second aspect that, that you were talking about, you know, I get probably, I think at least 20 emails a day about um, different security incidents or threats um, around the country in Afghanistan and um, Iraq's a bit of a different story, but um, some of the people in our program have been um, in directly affected um, by attacks. They've all been been affected by attacks in, in some way or another. They've all lost um, friends or family members. Um, but, you know, there's been attacks on universities that um, some of our participants, you know, were there at the time and had to give first aid to their friends and their schoolmates. Um, you know, the violence is very close and it, it's very real. And, you know, even with the UN, when I was there, we were you are sheltered to a certain degree because you live in these armed compounds, you know, you can only ride around in armored vehicles. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't really protect you. You know, there was um, quite a large attack in Kabul where I was driving to a meeting and, you know, you could see the, the smoke billowing up. I was maybe a kilometer away, which is, which is far, but it's still, it still does hit you when you think, okay, you know, what if I'd left the meeting five minutes earlier? Um, and we lost a colleague. Actually, it was around this time last year. We, we lost a colleague. Someone had, um, yeah, put an IED on, on one of our UN vehicles. And that was, that was quite scary because then you're hit with the realization that, you know, it's not just generalized violence, but you can be directly targeted. And, you know, then I was spending about two hours a day on the road and to have to wear your armored um, equipment and your helmet and, you know, get ready to make the decision of whether to hunker down or try to roll out of the vehicle and run away. <laughs> it, um, it added a level of stress that uh, was pretty real, I think. And that's something that, that the Girls in Our Program go through on a daily basis. You know, I was there for two and a half years. I left, you know, I'm now, I'm now here. Um, that's something that they lived with their whole lives. And it's, it's a part of their normal. So yeah, these are the things I think about when I, whenever I start to get a little bit um, down about the pandemic, I'm like, it's fine. Mm -hmm. Everything is fine. The girls that are, have been a part of your programs, do they communicate with you, um, the stress that they're experiencing um, or is it become so normal that they don't even see it as stress anymore? Yeah. I, I, I think a lot of them don't necessarily recognize that some of the, the feelings and the reactions that they have are stress induced um, are the effects of, of trauma. We actually developed um, a curriculum as well um, to deal with mental trauma in a way that isn't confronting, and um, it's through um, through using sports again. <clears throat> and 
you know, this is important because there isn't really a culture of, um, you know, going to therapy or talking to people about your feelings. <laughs> they they don't yeah. they don't do that. And and so we had to try to find ways. Okay, how do we actually support um, the women and girls in our program who you know all have suffered from some kind of of trauma and are all suffering from the effects of of living in in this type of environment? So how do we respond to that? And during the pandemic as well, you know, we had to think about how to continue to support them because you know our, our programs had stopped in the sense that. You know, we're no longer doing group trainings. We're no longer doing races, um, but we didn't want to stop our our support and our activities. And so we switched to you know completely remote support. You know, not all of them have internet, of course, so through phone calls. But for for a number of them, we became the lifeline for them. We were their only contact, you know, outside of their family to um, to discuss issues. Um, there were a lot, there's a lot more pressure just generally, um, on families during the pandemic because of, um, loss of employment or other issues to, you know, marry their daughters off, um, at an earlier age and make sure that they're taken care of, or, um, you know, even get the income from, from the diary. So, you know, for a, a lot of them, we free to run was that was their lifeline. And, you know, we always have to constantly think about how we can support the participants in our program holistically. Can you share with me a story of, um, you know, maybe a, a girl who's a part of the program and what you've seen through Free to Run being in existence in her life? Yeah, I mean, my, my stories are now probably a bit outdated because, you know, it's the unfortunate <laughs> side effect of having an organization grow. You know, I'm no longer getting to to kind of hang out with all of the the participants. I'm now doing a lot of really boring stuff with the board of directors and <laughs> budgets and, and fundraising. Um, so I, I don't get to do the, <laughs> the really cool things. And you know, the whole time I was in Afghanistan, I wasn't allowed under UN security rules this for the last couple of years to even go visit our own free to run office. Um, I mean, I, I did, but <laughs> I, I technically wasn't, wasn't allowed. And so it really limited my, my interaction that I got to have with, with the, with the girls, but um, I've, I've seen it. So I think probably, you know, the, the, the biggest changes I've seen are with um, the people who've gone through our programs and then we've ended up hiring and who have come on, on staff and, you know, you, you see people who maybe have never done sports before. They've never, um, yeah, we had actually, we had one girl, um, she had never traveled outside of her province. She'd never, um, and you know, some provinces have, you know, different, um, ethnicities, different makeups. So some provinces might have more Tajiks and others might have more Uzbeks and, um, so when you travel to another province, you're exposed to, to different cultures within Afghanistan. And we try to, um, to bring the, the women and girls from the different parts, um, or the different provinces together through these like sport and leadership weeks. And, um, yeah, we had one girl who, whose father had never let her, um, 
kind of travel alone before. And that's a big deal. And she came to our um, sport and leadership week um, in the Central Highlands region. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. You just see people come to life. You see a spark that you haven't seen before. Um, I personally, the last time I ran, um, there's a marathon that we do in the Central Highlands region um, every year. We didn't this year because of COVID, but you know, I ran a full marathon with like a 15 year old girl wearing sparkly jeggings and, you know, she had never traveled before. (laughs) (laughs) If you can imagine, you know, someone who had only, you know, just gone to school, helped her mom with chores. And then suddenly she runs a marathon in the mountains. I mean, that's that's pretty huge. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's just one of the, one of the, um, the people that um, we've been connected to, you know, she said, I-, I never used to think about my future before, you know, I would just, you know, go to school, I come home, I you know, do my chores, but I never thought about what's coming next. And through the process, even of following a training program, you start to think about tomorrow, the next week, the next month, and and working towards a goal. I mean, it's such a basic thing for all of us, but that's something that a lot of Afghan women um, and girls and and the ones in Iraq as well that that just isn't part of their their makeup. You know, I'm going to put a lot of details of free to run um, on the show notes for this, including the website, how people can um, support if they choose to. I know that um, you're definitely trying to encourage people to run for free to run, which I think is a really great way. Being such a sm- such a small organisation, the money yeah. and the contribution goes far. So um, I think it's a really great way for runners to feel like they can be a part of something completely in the remit um, that they love and passing that on to other people who might not have that opportunity as a given. Um, so that will all be in the show notes. But, you know, I was coming into this podcast and I know someone I know someone like you loves to run for mental health as much as the physical benefits. But, you know, as I'm listening to you talking right now, I think a part of the reason that you have been able to train like you do and then race like the way that you do in such challenging training environments and compounds and on a treadmill and then go to Tour de Giants and kind of come second I think you carry these stories of these women and girls who are living in these conflict zones that you've been privy to have a small snapshot into their lives and that is with you now, always in the space and when you get to run outside. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you were saying earlier um, in the podcast that, you know, you have your work, you have your NGO and you have your running and you're able to, you know, balance these three things. But I actually need all three of those things to fit together. I wouldn't be able to do Mm. my work without my running. And I don't think I'd be able to do my running without having seen all the things I've seen through my my NGO and my work. I mean, it's if you're at mile, you know, 167 of a 200 mile race and, you know, for normal people, this is a long way talking to someone like you is probably a minuscule portion, but, um, you know, it's very hard to, if, if I didn't have all of these other experiences, it would be very easy to feel sorry for myself and, um, and to think about the pain and, and to, and to quit. And I probably would, but, you know, being, having this type of life, um, 
allows me, it gives me the chance to get out of my own head and focus on those things that I do have, the reasons why I'm doing these things, how, how privileged really I am to, to be able to, to do anything that I do. And, um, and it's just, you know, it's all about perspective. It's all about having that perspective to get you through those moments. So all of the things that I'm doing, it might look very busy or, or full, but it's not a juggling act. It's those things are all necessary in order to keep moving forward. I think I would absolutely fall apart um, in my work if I didn't have my running or my NGO and, and, you know, vice versa. I think I would be a pretty shit runner um, if I didn't have my running or my NGO. (laughs) But I think it's so beautiful. Like I think you've created this really wonderful, very unique trifecta um that you know it's not a conventional career path like you've actually crafted this yourself and it's something that I often kind of think with such gratitude that I I, you know I've done you know I I run I speak about it and I do social impact work and they all feed in together um and I I feel grateful for having that in my life too and yes it's complex and there's often not many other paths that you can look to other people who have done a similar thing but you're trailblazing your own unique thing Um, and to things that mean a lot to you and so therefore when you go to bed at night even if there's like heaviness of the work that you're doing you know you're in the right place yeah absolutely and I think if you follow follow your passion follow your heart um and just be authentic then you you can't go wrong you know I there's been a, a number of times where I really I do wish that um <laughs> that I could have not wanted this because life would have been a lot <laughs> if I was a corporate lawyer. But you know, you don't choose what your passions are. You just choose whether to be brave enough to follow them. And um, and if you do, you can't go wrong because yeah, when I wake up in the morning, I don't have I have a lot of anxiety <laughs> for other reasons. But I don't have any anxiety about you know, whether I'm in the right place, because I know I am. I, I absolutely know I am. And so I can take comfort in that, which helps all of the other work-related anxieties. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, it's so funny. Like we met through a very narrow lens of running. Yeah. We're now over an hour and 15 minutes into chatting to each other and we haven't spoken about running at all. Like, <laughs> not really. And I love this because... I was chatting to to Ryan Sands the other day, also a runner, um, and he kind of said to me, oh, Sam, I just actually I want to do your podcast because you don't talk about running. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I go, it, it's a little bit boring like to talk about running again and again and again. And what I, I like to do with these conversations is like have people who, yes, we have this intersection of a really similar passion, but like we're so much more than the runner. And it is so healthy to see yourself more than just one thing because, and you've seen this in the lives of people that you've been in connection to, sometimes that one thing that we hold so tightly as our identity can be taken away from us. And then we are left, and you, you know, you're on the brink of it after your like horrific accident um, a couple of years ago. And we need, I think one of the messages I definitely think is important to share is like we need to have multiple things that we care about that make us who we are. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have struggled with that, um, obviously, during 
during the pandemic, you know, people whose identity is tied up in racing or, um, yeah, or, or just even being able to, to, to run freely, which a lot of people haven't been able to during the pandemic and they've had to kind of rethink things. Um, and, you know, for me, it's, it's, I mean, I love racing, but, um, I wasn't, after the first race cancellation, which was in January for me due to COVID, there wasn't really a lot of sadness because it was just an understanding that this is just, for me, it's just not the year. It's just not the year to be racing. It's not the year um, to to be competing in, in large crowds. And, and what a gift we have to just be able to enjoy the mountains, enjoy the outdoors, you know, even if it's in, within one kilometer, like I have right now in, in France, without the, the stress and the joy, but the, the stress of competition. And, and we can just give our, all of us a little bit of a breathing space, but it has required people to, um, to rethink their, um, their own relationship with running, I think, and, and their own identity. I mean, I, you mentioned my accident, and um, that was uh, almost four years ago now. Um, I think it happened January 1st, 2017. And that was a case where, you know, I almost died. And um, as traumatic as my injuries were, I was able to get running within, you know, a few weeks, which was so important to me, not because of the physical act of running, but because it was so close to my identity and, and it was, um, such a big part of, of who I was. And I really empathize with, you know, anyone who is, is feeling that through the pandemic is, is feeling that loss of identity either because they've lost their job or they've, you know, lost, um, running or, you know, anything that's been affected by the pandemic. But, I think we just have to be be kind to ourselves. And as you say, you know, everyone does have obviously more than one thing that fits into their identity. And so it's not about going out and finding something else. It's about looking within yourself to see, you know, what makes you you, whether it's, um, you know, being a great sister or a great mom or father or son or daughter or if it's your work or running, whatever it is, we've got all of these things that make us up into who we are. And, you know, this year is just about shifting our, our focus on, again, the things, the things that we do have, not the things that we've necessarily lost. That is so beautifully said. And I appreciate your insights on that. And I, I do believe they're going to really resonate to what people are enduring right now. Now, it's going to be remiss of me to not ask you if you're comfortable to share what actually happened with your accident. Sure. It's it's something I think about um, probably still every day now. <laughs> so on, it was New Year's Day, um, now about almost four years ago, it was New Year's Day 2017, and I had wanted to spend New Year's Eve up in the mountains where I was happiest. I mean, New Year's Eve is is just one other day, but it does provide a chance to kind of take stock of where you're at in life and 
um, I just wanted to do that up in the mountains. And so I, one of the refuges that's along the UTMB course and along the Tortoise Leon course that, you know, I'd been to um, many times before, they were having um, snowshoeing uh, tours go and stay up at the refuge uh, for the night. And I thought it'd be super fun, but n- none of my friends were um, were really interested in joining. So I just went by myself and spent the evening. I think I even went to bed before midnight, <laughs> spent the evening with a bunch of Italians um, out in the mountains. And, and I thought that New Year's Day, I would just get up super early with the sunrise and have a really nice snowshoe run back to Cormayer in, in Italy. And I'd asked one of the guides, you know, if the way back, um, which was a different way than we'd come, um, if the way back along the trail um, was was safe and, and I'd be able to to do it. And he said it was clear, it was fine. And I wasn't, I wasn't too worried. I'd been on that trail a billion times before. Um, so it wasn't, there was nothing in my head that said that this was going to be dangerous. So I, I got up early um, when it was still a little bit dark. I had my head torch. I started running along the trail. And the first, I guess the, I don't know if it was the first hour, but the first bit was was super easy. And then I got to a place where there was a river. And normally there's a, a bridge, but they'd taken the bridge out for the winter. And so I, I was able to to cross the river without too uh, too much trouble, but then I I just lost where the path kind of picked up on the other side, and so I ended up just going a little bit too high um, from where the trail actually was, and again it it didn't seem like it was a big deal, but I got to one section that was that was a bit steep, and my foot just slipped, and you know when you're foot slips and and you fall a little bit also happens to me a lot (laughs) um it didn't set off any alarm bells in my head and I just thought okay you know I'll I'll catch myself but um you know it stops and everything was covered in snow and I was sliding and then the terrain kind of dropped off and I started tumbling head over feet just over and over and over and over and that's when I obviously was was really quite panicking because I I didn't know what was coming. I didn't know what um, if the land would you know completely drop off and I would free fall. I didn't know if I would hit a rock or a tree or um, it it felt actually like a very very long time that I was tumbling and it the the things that were running through my head at that time about what could happen were, were pretty terrifying. Um, you know, there were some, you know, very high profile ultra runners that had, um, gotten in bad accidents, um, you know, in the previous year or or two years. And yeah, it was, it was just a very scary moment. And I ended up hitting a tree, um, kind of on the right side of my body, kind of like I was, I was hugging it. And it was almost a sense of relief, like, okay, you know, now the falling has ended and, you know, I haven't, I haven't broken my back. I've, I've hit on the front, you know, I know what's happening, but it, it felt like the wind was knocked out of me. But um, yeah, it, I, I almost started to, to black out a bit. Um, 
And then I, when I tried to breathe in, I realized that I, there was something seriously wrong because I couldn't, I couldn't really breathe. Um, and it was obviously quite a lot of, a lot of pain. Um, so I ended up having to kind of push off the tree and, and I just kind of fell over onto my, onto my left side. Um, so that I was a little bit more stable and, and I knew that I would need to call for a rescue. You know, you kind of, you don't know how you're going to act when you are in a really serious emergency. And it, I'm very happy that, <laughs> that I, I reacted so calmly. I mean, it was, it was crazy how logical it was. I kind of went through my head what the steps were. I was like, okay, you know, can I walk myself down to the valley and see if I can flag someone for help? No, absolutely not. I couldn't even sit up. You know, can I call for help? No, I am having trouble breathing and there's no one around. And then, you know, I, it came to it that I said, okay, you know, the only way I'm going to get out of this is if, is if I can call for a helicopter. And my phone had already died twice in the, in the cold. I mean, the cold just um, sapped the, um, the battery in, in my iPhone. Um, and so while it had been charged before, you know, it, it had died and I had put my phone into my, my bra to try to warm it up. Cause then you can, it's almost like you can kind of revive the battery that way. And, and luckily the tree had hit me on the opposite side. So I still had my phone, but I wasn't sure if it was going to turn on. And that moment before I tried to turn on my phone, I, I will, I will never forget those moments because I knew, you know, despite having lived in Afghanistan, having lived in Gaza, having lived in South Sudan, worked in all of these crazy places and, you know, come out unscathed. I knew that this was the moment that if my phone didn't turn on, I would die. And it's a very rare Ugh, it's a very rare opportunity, thank goodness. But most people don't don't experience that, where they are in what seems like a very calm moment, where they know that 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 could be it. And you know, I would have died on the side of that mountain by myself. Um, and that that was the moment that, that took me a long time to actually um, recover from mentally. But I mean no surprise. I was able to turn on my phone and, and I got my GPS coordinates out and, um, and a helicopter came. And after, after I got my GPS coordinates out, even though I wasn't safe yet and they still had to find me and rescue me and I still had to make it to the hospital. That was when I could kind of relax a bit because I knew that, you know, even if I, it sounds quite morbid, but like, even if I passed out, like someone would be able to find me and I wouldn't just be, you know, lost by myself in, in the woods. And it's the, it's the most intense feeling of loneliness I, I think I've ever felt. So yeah, and I had ended up breaking um, six ribs on the right side of my body. I punctured my lung, which is why I was having trouble breathing. Um, and I had a grade three liver laceration. So I actually had a liter and a half, I'd lost a liter and a half of blood internally to yeah, to internal bleeding, um, which was, yeah, pretty, pretty serious, I think. Um, but the, the helicopter found me, I got back, they kind of put a tube, you know, in through my ribs, um, to drain, 
<laughs> blood from my lungs. And um, yeah, I was in the hospital. I was supposed to be in the hospital for about two weeks. Um, but I ended up signing myself out after 10 days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the doctors had told me, you know, I mean, I was in the ICU, you know, someone actually like coded in the bed next to me, but you're on so much, so many drugs, you're on so much morphine. Um, I was really quite focused on my running and when I would get back to running. And of course, this probably seems insane to some who are listening. And, and it definitely seemed insane to the doctors, because they were just trying to make sure that um, the internal bleeding stopped and I'd be kept alive. But you know, I didn't have a scratch on me on the outside of my body. I mean, I think I had a little bit of a scrape on my hip, but that was it. And when the doctor told me, you know, you are not running this year at all, I couldn't take it. And I, 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 I just was hysterically crying and I asked for a second opinion and they sent a psychologist instead, <laughs> which was not helpful. Um, but, you know, I knew that the doctors I'd been working with in Switzerland and my, you know, I called them like my sports medical team, but um, they just had a very different approach. And I knew that the faster I could get back to, them, the faster I could get back to running, the faster I would start to feel like me again, and I could start to process the the trauma. Um, so I was I was actually back running in three and a half weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, I've got to go like a few steps back because even just the simplest thing, like I'm thinking on survival for a moment. So how did you get your coordinates of where you were so quickly? Yeah, so I had um, a GPS watch on me. And honestly, if you asked me now how to pull up the GPS coordinates on my watch, I, I wouldn't necessarily be able to tell you. But in the moment, it's, it's just this weird thing that happened. Like I was, I wasn't panicking. I just knew like, you need to get your GPS coordinates. You need to get it quickly. You need to get this call out or you will not live. And because you must have I, been so worried about the battery dying on the phone again. Yep. Oh, yep. Yep. Well, I got the GPS coordinates before I tried turning on the phone, I think, because um, I just wanted everything set up so that the call could be as, as short as possible. Um, so, yeah, I got the GPS coordinates off my off my watch and and made the, the call. I think, that's, I think that was the sequence of how it went, yeah. I mean, I followed your... Uh, at least your retelling of the story and of your experience via social media. I think I reached out to you a couple of times and I was it was shocking to for someone that you know to be doing something that you could have easily found yourself doing and it to go so bad so quickly. And Did we talk when I was in the hospital? Yeah, we, we, I we shared remember. a couple of messages. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't talk. We, we didn't miss I'm sure you got you had the world reaching out to you, but because it was no, I was just on so many drugs. I I really don't remember. You know, I've had. I I hope I responded nicely. So thank you. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you're talking about how running was this thing that you were fixated on, and now yeah. you can say that it was because you saw that as a part of dealing through your trauma. But were you able to intellectualize that at the time, or was it just something that you were kind of obsessing on because that was your connection to normalcy? Yeah, I think. You know, looking back on it, 
you just, your whole world is turned upside down in an experience like that. And so all you want to do is find something to try to make yourself feel like you're normal. The world is normal. You, you haven't actually, you know, just died and anything that makes it seem like things are, are fine are really comforting. So, you know, I was trying to jump back into work. I was trying to jump back into work with um, my charity you know, from the ICU. And everyone kept telling me like, take a break, you know, we can handle it. We've got things covered, just relax. But people telling me that was so stressful because it was like people were telling me like, you know, your absence wouldn't have affected us. I know that's not what they were saying, but here I've just gone through this experience where I might have been, I have died. And people were telling me, it's fine. We can handle things. You know, you don't need to jump back in. We don't need you. And they thought it was a very comforting thing. But for me, who just been through this trauma, it was really upsetting. And so, you know, way too early, I was trying to jump into work. And, and you know, I wasn't, I wasn't of, I, I want to say I wasn't of right mind, but you know, it, it, it takes a while to, to process that kind of trauma. I mean, I had to go back to work um, within 10 days because I hadn't accumulated enough, enough leave. And, um, you know, I wasn't supposed to be, I wasn't supposed to be moving around at all. But I remember I, I organized a work meeting in the cafeteria and people were like five minutes late and I had a complete panic attack. Or, I mean, maybe it wasn't a panic attack, but I completely broke down because, even though I was in the cafeteria, it was just this feeling of being alone again that I, I really had, I really had trouble with. Um, so it, it took a, a while to, to really process what had happened. And, you know, I couldn't even, I couldn't even lie down in bed to sleep properly for almost two months um, because of the broken ribs. And it was uh, while I was running after three and a half weeks it, the to overcome it emotionally, um, took some time yeah do you think focusing on your running helped you move toward the trauma or processing the trauma of the situation or was it was it almost a distraction no no ab absolutely I mean it's again you know running is so intrinsic to who I am as a person and how I relate to the world and I wanted to feel like me and at the same time, you know, I knew that I had just been through this scary experience from running, from my safe activity, from my safe place. And so I didn't want it to become a, a thing. I didn't want to to not run and then have it be a big deal when I finally got back to running. I didn't I, I, I didn't want to be scared to go in the mountains again. So You I literally thought, took that saying, get back on the yeah. horse. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I started, obviously I said, I started slowly because, you know, when I was running my, my ribs were, were still broken and, um, <laughs> you know, that I just had to make sure my, my liver was healed, um, so that there would be no concern about internal bleeding, but my ribs were, were still broken. So it was, it was painful. I had to go off. I was on very strong pain meds, but I had to go off the pain meds they make you quite dizzy in order for me to be able to run. But the doctor had said, if you can handle the pain, you know, actually the movement 
and the the circulation will help your ribs heal quicker. So I knew that it was it wasn't a bad pain that I was feeling. It was a pain that you know I could work through and would be healing. And it was so it was so helpful for me to feel normal. I was just running in the valley. Um, I wasn't going into the mountains. I would run with friends, and there was there was one run I went on with my Swiss friend Greg, and um, we were just running along you know, a hillside and it wasn't anything that should have been scary. And I just froze and it was a really hard thing to work through because I was mad at myself for letting this affect me and for being scared. Um, and, you know, I just burst into tears kind of clinging on what was probably the side of a very tame slope, <laughs> but, you know, I had a friend there at least to, to work through it. And, and yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a process, but definitely not a distraction. It was something that really brought me back, forced me to um, to deal with how my relationship with the trail had changed, and it, it has changed. I mean, I it, for you know for a good reason. When we get into ultra running, when we get into the sport, we have to convince ourselves that anything is possible. I mean, I have a TED talk on it, like, you know, that we can do, we can do anything. And, you know, it's, it's up to us to really push the boundaries and to be faced with that realization that actually, no, you are quite fragile. It's hard to, to reconcile that, to know, you know, when to push the boundaries and when to actually make a very smart decision and turn back or not take that risk. And I think we're always battling, you know, we're, we're walking that line. It's, it's, it's a dance and <clears throat> I'm trying to get better at, you know, listening to, to my gut and not feeling like I need to push through things that are actually very risky because it's important to push through our, limitations and push ourselves outside of our comfort zone. But we have to know not where the limits of our capabilities are, but where the limits of safety are. And, and that's something that I think about every day and something, an activity that we think is, you know, relatively safe. I mean, I was snowshoe running. I wasn't like extreme downhill skiing. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't doing anything that I thought was crazy. Um, you know, still resulted in, in something that, that was quite dangerous. So I don't think that I'm less adventurous now. I think I just take more precautions and I'm more conscious of, um, yeah, of what my gut is telling me. And I'm, I'm not afraid to actually turn back and be like, nope, this is fine. I can come at this another day with, you know, more, comms with more people with more precautions and and I think that that's that's an important um, distinction to make in your head and you know accidents accidents happen you know the and I I think that's we just need to be aware of that you know no it's important to take all the precautions that you can but you know shit can still go wrong <laughs> and you know Andrea Husser who was um you know, she won the ultra trail world tour in 2017, that year that I had my accident. And she was amazing, amazing Swiss runner. Um, one of the top in the world. And she died just a couple of weeks ago from 
slipping and falling on the trails in the mountains. And, you know, I saw some people saying, you know, just on social media for, you know, how could this happen to such an experienced runner? And it's like, well, it's, it's the mountains, it's the Alps, you know, like we're human. We slip, we fall, we, we trip and, and accidents happen. Um, so just being, you know, aware that we are fallible. We like to think we're invincible. We're not invincible. We can do incredible things, but we actually aren't invincible. And I think there's power in recognizing that there's power in recognizing our own vulnerabilities and continuing to go into the mountains in spite of that, you know, taking all the precautions that we can, but we are facing our, our own vulnerability every time we, we step into the mountains. It's that beautiful balance of, you know, mitigating what might happen, not letting yeah. that stop you from exploring, and then also remembering, like, regardless, our time on this planet is limited, and so go out and enjoy, like, what you love to do. Yeah. It's like packaging all of that together and, you know, doing it your way that makes sense to you. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so grateful for that accident because I truly think as bad as it was, I, I truly think it saved me from a bigger one that might have been fatal. I, I really do. I, I think every, um, and maybe that's me just trying to feel better about about what happened. But I think that, I, I do think that there, that there was a lesson that I needed to learn through that experience. And, and I have you know you're always moving you're always in a different place but I know how important your family is to you and with your family right now you know how have you managed to keep connection to them when you live quite a transient life yeah my you know my mom has always said uh or reminded me home is where your family is and um the fact that I don't get to physically see my family very very often means that I carry them I carry them with me you know wherever wherever I go I don't shield them from the experiences that I'm having or from my emotions I mean I obviously don't share everything but I'm not afraid to tell them if I'm struggling or if I'm having a hard time when I'm alone in a war zone over Christmas or <laughs> going through a difficult period or finding it hard to relate to the people who are closest to me, sometimes even my own family members. And the beautiful thing that I'm so grateful for with my family is that they know how important my work is to me and how intrinsic running is to me. And they support me in that. I mean, my when I got the job offer to go back to Afghanistan, this was after I'd already done Afghanistan the first time and Gaza and South Sudan. And I was trying to figure out whether to take the job. Most of my friends, actually all of my friends told me not to go. They're like, you're crazy. You know, you've just bought a place in Chamonix. You have a job in Geneva. Why would you go to Afghanistan? And my parents were the ones who said, you, you should go back. And there aren't many parents that I think would say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> <laughs> and that just shows, you know, that, that, that they, they get me completely. And, you know, my dad has come to crew me in the Barkley twice and, you know, sleep in an RV and you know, stay up all night 
you know, waiting for me to just come out from, from the forest for 10 minutes so that he can give me soup. Um, it's, I, I feel, I feel really lucky to be so supported by them. What did your parents say to you when they kind of suggested that you should go back to Afghanistan? They just knew that it would be a good move for me in terms of where I wanted to go in my career. And most of the things that I do that end up being worth it are scary and do have pretty significant drawbacks. But taking the easy path and staying in Chamonix, staying working in Geneva, um, they knew might have been comforting in the short term, but wasn't going to get me to where I wanted to go in in the long term. And they were they were really supportive. I mean, I at the start I thought, oh gosh, guys, really? Like, do I need to go back? Um, because it didn't really give me an out. You know, if everyone was telling me, you know, you shouldn't go back to Afghanistan maybe I, who knows, I might not have gone, but um, yeah, I, I, I think they, they know me so well and they know that, that taking this unconventional path and, and making the hard decisions to put myself in these situations uh, ultimately makes me, it makes me really happy. Is like the plan, um, you know, when the pandemic passes um, to go back? Yeah, so I've taken this job in New York because, you know, as part of my career, it's really helpful to have the perspective of of headquarters when you are in quote unquote the field, um, and and vice versa. And I I wanted to have this experience in New York that I could bring back with me. You know, this isn't a permanent move to New York. This is a stepping stone so that I can go back with more experience and go to the next area of conflict and so that I can be more effective. So I, I can be better. We'll have to see what, what happens, but I would like to get, um, get a job back you know, working in another war zone. And during the pandemic, you know, my job in Afghanistan ended up being very different. You know, there were no field missions. There were no, you know, flying to the provinces, meeting with community elders, having these, really important conversations that I, I I loved about my job. And so it seemed like the right time to actually go to New York because I can do my job in, in New York remotely. And while I love seeing my colleagues, it's not the same as, you know, missing out on, on meeting with victims and community members and, and everything that I was doing in Afghanistan. So yeah, when the pandemic is, is over, I, um, I hope that I will be able to get back to that kind of really hands-on work having brought the New York experience with me but we'll ha- we'll have to see i mean the sad reality is you know as much as everyone is pushing for equal distribution of of vaccines is that people who live in developed countries and who have you know access to medical insurance and functioning healthcare systems that that will get the vaccines um, before others do. So a lot of the areas that I want to go back and work in might not get the vaccines for, for quite some time. I mean, Afghanistan still has polio. So who knows? Who knows what this is going to look like? But I am I am so ready to to dive back in. I mean, I've, I've only been out of Afghanistan now, I guess, for five months. 
but, um, or less, <laughs> but I'm, I'm ready to go back. And, and until I get a job back in, um, in an area of conflict with the UN, I'll be looking to jump on a plane to head to, um, Afghanistan or Iraq for, for free to run. I can only imagine your desire to get back to Afghanistan to support, you know, your organization, Free to Run on the Ground. You know, from what you've just shared then, there seems to be this comfortable acceptance, you know, even a submission to the fluidity of your situation. Something that for many people would be, you know, produce kind of high levels of anxiety. Is this something that you're very conscious and aware of? Well, I think I'm lucky that I can do that. Uh, maybe other people would look at me and think, oh God, you know, 38 and single, I feel so badly for her. But being 38 and single means that I can live exactly the way I want at, at any time. I mean, I would love to, you know, find a partner someday who was cool with that, but I don't have to, I don't have to take anyone else's situation into consideration. And, um, I, I feel like the, I feel really lucky because of that. You know, it's, I can make whatever choice I want about career moves, about country moves without, yeah, just completely selfishly. Um, so that, that does give me an advantage. I think it's really hard for a lot of my colleagues who have um, partners and especially kids. You know, there's a lot of pressure on, on women to fulfill a certain role as a mother that, doesn't well they could jump into a war zone and be away from their kids for six weeks at a time the the, the realities of it would be very yeah. challenging the reality yeah. of it, it would be incredibly challenging and there's a lot of judgment on mothers especially it's okay for fathers to do that apparently but but not mothers and i've seen my colleagues struggle with that so you know i i I'm grateful in a sense that I, I can just hop around the world and, and I try, I try not to stress about the uncertainty of it all. I don't know where I'm going to be in a year and I don't know where I'm going to be in five years. And there's a lot of excitement. Um, of course, yeah, a, a bit of anxiety, but that's just how my life is. You know, I'm, I realized at some point I wasn't going to have the life where, you know, I, I, I jump around from war zone to war zone and then I settle down. And I lead a normal life because that's how a lot of people were, were describing my life to me. That's how I started to describe my life to other people. And so this move back to Afghanistan was like, okay, this will be, you know, my one last move. And then I can, I can settle down a bit. I will have done my time. And I realized that I love my work in Afghanistan. I don't, that's not a phase of my life. That just is my life. And, and I don't, I probably won't follow that path where eventually I, you know, find someone, settle down, have kids, and and that's the end of this this form of my career that I that I have. It that's that's not going to be the case. Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, maybe I will get have some form of marriage. Maybe I will have some form of kids. I don't know, and maybe I won't. Maybe I'll I'll be like this and, until I'm sixty, and I'll be perfectly happy. So who knows? It's, it's quite freeing to just have all options on the table and to not really worry about what the final result is. I think if you're following your passion and you're, you're doing what you want and, and 
and you wake up every day feeling like your place in the world is solid, then it doesn't really matter. You will attract all of the other things that you need. So I don't, I don't really need to worry about it. You know, this podcast is listened to by you know so many women, uh, particularly mothers as well, and I think it's really empowering that we hear your perspective um, and be reminded that we can actually create our own timelines. And in fact, there's going to be challenges um, and obviously amazing benefits of every single journey, um, but it's actually a choice that we need to make for ourselves. And I think most importantly, it's just such a great reminder that we have to stop judging the pathways of other people. Um, women especially need to stop doing this to other women. You know, have you personally felt criticism for the pathway that you've chosen to take? Especially as a 38-year-old woman, you get the questions of like, okay, you know, time is running out, tick tock. <laughs> and, you know, are you going to freeze your eggs? Do you want to have children? I guess if you're leading this kind of life, you're not going to have children. And I'm like, I don't know. And <laughs> I don't know. It's an obvious thing to say, but you don't have to lead the life of, you know, career, meet someone, marry kids. And then, you know, that's, that's not necessarily the path, you know, you can have marriages where people live in separate countries and maybe, you know, see each other infrequently. It doesn't mean it's less of a marriage. It means that maybe they're both doing the things that fulfill them and they love each other and still want to be together, but they're just not physically together. I've seen lots of relationships like that in the humanitarian world that, works so beautifully and it's a nice it's a nice model to think about i've seen mothers who are living in war zones and have kids being you know raised day to day by the father i've seen it's quite beautiful and in these humanitarian communities i'm a part of i've seen single humanitarian women trying to find co-parents with others in the community so that they can adopt i mean it's just the possibilities of various forms of, of family are so endless. And also the possibilities of just leading your best life as your own family. You know, that's pretty cool too. I, I, I just think that we're constantly given one idea or one model of what the end state is rather than realizing that if you're happy, that is your end state and you can, you can move through the world as that form and you can change that form at any time. There's, there's no one linear path to, to anyone. And it's, it's a hard thing to really grasp because this is ingrained into us, especially as women. And then you're left with this feeling that you've failed. I had a friend say this to me during the pandemic, like I have failed because I'm whatever age and I don't have a partner. And that is crazy talk. That is crazy talk. I mean, like, how awesome is it to be single in this pandemic? <laughs> I mean, I've loved it. <laughs> you know, it is really refreshing to hear you say this, Steph. And I actually have no doubt that the process to this position, you know, may have involved judgment from others and perhaps yourself. So thank you for your willingness to be so open. Now we have to slowly wrap this up because um, 
I'm just somewhat amused. Once again, in a conversation on this podcast, we have overlooked the whole run side of your life. But can we take some time to discuss your training? Because you train in what many people would say is very peculiar settings, you know, in a treadmill, in a compound in Afghanistan, you know, doing loops. And then you go off to the Alps doing these 300 kilometer plus races and you perform incredibly well. In fact, it seems to me that you perform almost better when you have come from these situations of hardship versus when you have these perfect build-ups, um, maybe in the mountains. Um, why do you think that's the case? Yeah, interesting you picked up on that because it's I've, I've felt the same. You know, whenever I, I've had good training, I've done okay, but yeah, I, I do much better when I'm coming from, from really shitty circumstances of, you know, running around in loops in an arm compound or, or training on a, on a treadmill. And I think it's because those are the races where I go in with no expectations and there's no pressure. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, anything I do in this race is a gift. Anything I do in this race is a bonus. And I'm also just so excited not to be running in an arm compound or on a treadmill. <laughs> I'm like, this is awesome. I feel no pain. <laughs> and, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I think that's it really. And when we put the pressure on ourselves and when we go in with certain expectations that like, okay, you know, I should be able to do really well in this race. I should be able to, you know, do this time or whatever it is. For me, that sets me up for failure because there is no should. I mean, uh, there's just what you do. And and a race is completely unknown, um, especially ultras. And so being able to go in without any kind of a should, and it's just, you know, I can. Um, I can finish this race. I'm going to enjoy this race. And that's it. And when when those expectations are gone, then you can just fly. And uh, yeah. That's that's the environment that, that I really love. Would you say that you're a confident person? I'm not confident. I'm, I'm really not confident. I'm not confident when I go into races. I'm not confident um, at work, you know, until I really feel like I, I've earned it. Um, I'm not confident in a lot of things. And I, I'm trying to see this as, as a bit of a strength because it – it's what makes me a little bit anxious, but it's what keeps me driving forward because I just have to think that I, um, yeah, that I, that I need to work harder at something in order to, to pull it off. I don't know whether that's necessarily true, but um, it's certainly something that, that um, makes me a little bit driven. <laughs> Ah, the complicated mindset of Stephanie (laughs) Kate. I would like to be a little bit less insecure, but I think it's good for everyone to have a little bit of insecurity because it's that vulnerability that allows us to to grow. But yeah, I I definitely would like to be a little bit less insecure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to tell you that I appreciate you and congratulations for your new ambassador explorership with um, the North Face. I think a perfect union between that name and the work that you do in and and outside the um, running space. I'm super excited to be involved with the North Face I think there's going to be really exciting things ahead. And the nice part about the Explore program is that 
you know, it involves people from all different parts of life. Like I'm not an elite athlete, um, but they, oh, I was like, do you have, oh, no, (laughs) no, but it's true, it's true, and, you know, there's, they've got, like, artists, they've got these, these different people involved, and I think it's important for sports companies to, to look beyond the normal mold of, of people. Well, kudos to the North Face, and I think they've made a very smart, wise decision working with you. Do you have plans of what you might do through that program? I'm hoping to take a pretty big chunk of next summer off. That was my plan for this year, <laughs> pre-COVID, was to actually take three, three full months off from, from work um, to take some unpaid leave and and just decompress a little bit from, from Afghanistan, from some of the intense, intense experiences I've had. And while I'm getting to decompress now, I'm still... I'm, I'm not in a war zone, but I'm still working at, at a pretty insane pace. And I haven't really had the time to untangle, I think, a lot of the the things that I had to see and, and deal with in, in Afghanistan. So I am hoping to be able to get, you know, even just like a, a month next summer um, would be pretty luxurious to just run in the mountains and, you know, cry on top of hilltops and... <laughs> How like a wolf um, at the moon as I run through the night. I think that would be pretty cool. I hope the world opens so I can cry on a mountaintop with you. Sounds kind Let's of lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I say it in jest, but I'm totally not. I, <laughs> if you come running with me in, in the night over a mountaintop, there will definitely be tears of joy. <laughs> well, thank you so much for kind of giving me your space and um, I look forward to staying in touch and sharing this conversation as well. Yeah, it's so great to chat after after so long. I mean, I, I follow you and, and your um, your stories and admittedly we didn't get to talk a lot about you, but <laughs> we'll have to. <laughs> <laughs> that was an idiotic thing to say, but anyway... <laughs> There was so much in that conversation that I think all of us really needed to hear right now. One of my favourite moments in that conversation is when Steph said, if you are happy, that is the end state. And it really reminded me that of a conversation I had with another friend recently where I said, you know, if you've walked away from this year with a roof over your head, your relationship is still intact, you've actually done really, really well. And it might not sound like the big ambitious goals that we might have perceived in the past but it's never been more important to focus on the real essentials and that is an empowering thing and for people who have not been as fortunate to have those two things then my hearts go out to all of you and I hope for 2021 things look differently. If you want to follow Steph and I warmly encourage you to check her out her website is um, ultrarunnergirl.com her Instagram handle is at the ultra runner girl. Uh, and you can also check out free to run, which is the organization that Steph has founded. They're doing some incredible work uh, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Uh, and there's lots of ways that you can be a part of it. 
Now, moving on to 2021, I've got some really exciting developments that I've been working through to this year. One of them will be a virtual book club, and it's not going to be just your typical book club where I suggest a couple of books and you guys read them. Maybe I jump on a Zoom call and get you to ask questions, but I am inviting the author to join in on that Zoom call, and you guys can deep dive with these incredible authors, authors that tell tales of adventures that look at themes of resilience, uh, transformation, human performance, contribution. Uh, This is something that I've really wanted to dial down on for this year, providing more opportunities where you can get these deeper insights from people who may be on the podcast um, and a lot of the guests will be uh, the authors, should I say, but some are completely new that you may never have heard before as well. So details for that will be on my website, samanthagash.com, coming very, very shortly, uh, as well as another program specifically for women embarking on trail adventures. So a lot of those will be coming out. I'll share more of them on the podcast soon, but As always, I hope you guys are happy, safe, and well wherever you are. Thank you for joining me in 2020 uh, through the podcast, and I appreciate all the messages, all the shares. You have no idea how much it's meant to me as well as to the guests that have been onto this podcast. Look after yourselves and make sure to be kind to yourself and to other people. See you later, guys.